1: Shalom, everyone, and welcome to the Torah to the People podcast. My name is Rabbi Ross Levy, and we are coming to you live here from TI Crosstown in Midtown, Memphis, Tennessee. And I am so thrilled to be joined this evening on uh, this first evening moving into Sukkot following Shabbat uh, by the wonderful and amazing Alana Arian. And we are here in front of a live audience. So if you hear some, yes, yes. Let, let's give it up for Alana Arian, everyone. Thank you. They're here, they're here. Yeah, you, you don't have to be super quiet. It's okay, <laughs> it's okay. Um, and we're so excited to be able to ask you a few questions. I have a few questions. I'm sure the folks here will have a few questions as well. But before we get into that, just a little framing. I want to introduce you not just to the people in this room, but to the people all across this great country and this great world that we live in who tune into the Tour to the People podcast. A composer, multi-instrumentalist, and prayer leader, Alana Arian is one of the leading voices in contemporary Jewish music. Alana's music is part of Jewish life across the globe, and her compositions are sung in spiritual communities, summer camps, and synagogues from Louisville to London from Chicago to the Czech Republic, and everywhere in between. Special note, in 2021, Alana released her fourth album of re- original music, The Other Side of Fear, and her compositions have been published in countless transcontinental music collections. She serves proudly on the faculty of Hava in Oconomowoc, Wisconsin. I can't believe I pronounced that. I was that.
2: just about to give you a high five for Thank you.
1: Walk. Thank yeah, you. yeah, yeah. you. Uh, There's
2: four O's in Economi Walk, I think, if not five
1: faculty of we- Wexner Heritage Foundation, Shirei Hagiga, and as an instructor, perhaps most importantly, as an instructor at the Hebrew Union College Jewish Institute of Religion in New York, where she teaches in the Debbie Friedman School of Sacred Music. Raised on equal parts Mozart, Mingus, and I'm Mitchell. <laughs> <laughs> Alana studied conducting and violin, jazz guitar, and songwriting at Yale. She told me not to read the whole thing.
0: I like
2: you, but he's looking me right in the eyes when he's doing it,
1: too. (laughs) A sought-after studio musician, Alana, maintains a busy recording schedule, working with such varied artists as Peter Yarrow, the Dirty Projectors, and Katie Curtis. Uh, She held the guitar chair on both the Smash revival of Sweet Charity, starring Tony Award winner Sutton Foster, and on Kristen Chenoweth's acclaimed For the Girls, and has worked on multiple instruments in the pit, orchestras of Broadway shows. She lives in New York with her wife, Julia, and their two daughters, Maya and Acadia. Acadia. Yeah. Once again, please welcome Alana Arian. Thank you. Once again, thrilled to have you with us. Uh, Thrilled that we had the opportunity to hear so much of your music and really get to experience so much of your your soul and your spirit um, at our concert in the Meadow. Um, last night Friday evening Um, and what I was hoping for this podcast to get was to give folks a little bit of a peek behind the curtain in terms of your process and what led you to this path so the first question I have here on my handy dandy notes (laughs) is what is a foundational musical memory for you that's
2: a great question Uh, First of all, thank you all for having me. It's great to be back in Memphis. I love Temple Israel. Um, You can't get rid of me if you try. I'm coming back two more times this year, Um, and uh, it's just wonderful to be here Um, and wonderful to be talking to you. Um, Rabbi Levy was a student of mine at HUC during the, the deepest, darkest days of the pandemic. We did a class together over Zoom, and so quite recently, it was exciting to see you at your whole in person outside of the zoom box
1: uh not just me and my parents living (laughs) exactly
2: exactly it's just a thrill to get to see you um doing this work so um okay a core a foundational musical memory um so I grew up in a a very musical family my my uh my mom uh is a professor at Hebrew Union College and was a um music director of an organization called Synagogue 2000, which kind of helped to revitalize uh, the way that um, music lives in, in worship in um, contemporary uh, Jewish synagogues. And my dad was the director of Nifty and is a rabbi who's done tons of work uh, with Jewish camping. And they were both camp song leaders and that's how they met, you know, et cetera. You're getting the, the vibe of, of my upbringing. So I grew up with um, a lot of music... That's my own phone, I think, going off. Excuse me for a second, make sure. Oh, no, I don't think it was. Maybe it was one of you guys. All right, sorry.
1: See, Um, proof this is a live audience. It's a live
2: audience. It's okay. (laughs) Phones happen. I I would be embarrassed if it was me. Um, So so I grew up like uh, they used to call us fact brats at the Jewish summer camp. When you're the, you're the, the children of faculty, you would be called a fact brat. So I grew up for many summers as a fact brat at... A camp called the URJ Kutz camp, which was in uh, Warwick, New York, um, which was a really special, um, a different kind of camp than the rest of the URJ camps, um, because it was sort of a teen leadership academy. The, the, the campers were only from like 15 to 18 years old. Um, so that's already like if you picture a camp that's only teenagers, it kind of has its very specific, a uh, flavor to it. And, um, And they were the kind of kids that would sort of choose to spend their summer, you know, like there were regular camp activities or swimming and tennis or whatever, but then they would have a major and the major would be like uh, learning to read from the Torah or learning song leading or learning to like, you know, do advocacy work or working with kids with special needs. Like it was the kind of teenagers who would choose to spend their summer doing that. It was a very, very special place. And I anecdotally think probably... uh, a high percentage of the leaders in our contemporary leaders in, in our uh, reformed Jewish world at least um, spent some time there. It was a sort of a place to cultivate leadership. Anyway, I say all of that to say that I was a fact brat. I was a little kid growing up at this camp. I wasn't a camper because I wasn't a teenager. So I was sort of like the little like pet of the camp, <laughs> you know. And my parents did the music at the camp. So I have um, sort of a, I think, a conglomeration of of a few memories there, which is sort of like, um, they would have these really joyful raucous song sessions after dinner in the dining hall. And when I was little, I don't, I don't know exactly what time it was, but I know that certain, certain memories I have, I'm like in my pajamas in the dining hall. Like I went to dinner in my pajamas cause it was late enough. The kids were older and I would be kind of trying to keep myself awake to be able to be part of this, to the song session. And I would kind of fall asleep. I, many times I fell asleep, on the table with the with the song session going on. And those of you who've spent any time in Jewish camps, I mean, it's loud. It's not like you could go to sleep. It's not a normal thing. But I kind of have that um, memory of the sound of that, the stomping and the jumping around and the banging on the tables and and having that be something that kind of lulled me to sleep throughout my childhood, I think, um, speaks to, like, where I come from in, in in a way. Just the feeling, the sound of that, like, Vibrational thing putting yeah. you to sleep.
1: Even from a young age, you can really just feel that energy.
2: Totally, it's like unlike anything. It was always just stunning from a, as a kid, you know. And actually, this summer, um, so I have two daughters. My older daughter um, is a camper at a URJ camp in Western Massachusetts, in Stockbridge, West Stockbridge, Massachusetts, called Crane Lake Camp. It's a beautiful place, and. Um, so I usually go for a little, a week or something to work with the music team there as an artist in residence. Um, and this summer I got to have my whole family there with me for that week. Oh my goodness. And um, my younger daughter, Acadia, who's never been, she's never seen Jewish camp before, got to come and, and be a fact brat for the week. And... Uh, I watched her in the dining hall, you know, it's so loud in a, in a camp dining hall. And then the song, the, the song session and yeah, she, she would be eating and then they'd start singing and she's just like, you know, frozen in her tracks. So it's cool to see the next generation of that happening, but you can definitely feel that as a young kid, the energy.
1: So as the first line in your bio says, you're a multi-instrumentalist, off the top of my head, you play guitar, you play violin, you play mandolin, I would assume maybe some piano. A
2: little piano, okay. yeah.
1: Is there anything I'm missing?
2: <laughs> Those are like the ones that I that I play, primarily play in public, I would say. <laughs> I'm always like learning some instruments around on the side. So just...
1: That's, What's the most recent?
2: So I bought an oud like uh, a couple months ago, which is a like um, a Middle Eastern lute. Um, it has 11 strings and it does not have any frets. So it means that... Those of you who play guitar or other fretted instruments, you know you learn where the notes are by putting your fingers in these particular places between the little metal. Or if you play piano, the the, the equivalent of a fret is to have a key that you press on. And fretless instruments like I, I play violin. That's like my most trained instrument. Um, that's a big part of learning how to play violin. Is you have to you have to really find where the notes are because there's no marks and there's no keys and there's no whatever. You learn to train your ears to that. So it's kind of a cool combination of. The, the fretlessness of the violin world and the physicality of guitar. And of course it has completely different scales and tonality mm. than anything that I'm used to playing. And I'm having a lot of fun with that. If I had endless time and endless money, I would just be sitting in a room with instruments, learning how to, <laughs> to play all of One
1: them. Day. One day. One <laughs> exactly, day, exactly, exactly. What, what instrument did you first fall in love with?
2: So when I was, I started playing violin when I was seven. And I remember very strongly wanting to play the cello. That's what I had my heart on because the cello is the best. I mean, honestly, it's so gorgeous. Yes. Um, and um, I think in my elementary school, you could start like you could pick a string instrument, maybe in third grade or something. But I had some friends, these twins that I used to hang out with who were doing like Suzuki uh, stuff. And whenever I'd go to their house, they would be like, you know playing for me it's like scratching away at the beginning but I was so excited about it and I think my parents got me they talked me down from the cello because it would be like I have to carry it around Mm. and you know I had the conviction of like a seven-year-old so I'm like okay um how about violin you know (laughs) so I started um playing violin when I was uh seven and my mom is a pianist she was she was a piano performance major in college and um my brother Uh, plays piano he he took lessons for many years and so when I started to ask about playing violin my my mom tells me that she said like want how about you want don't you want to play piano because she was like teaching piano we have a piano my brother plays and apparently I was like no you guys play piano I want to (laughs) play something else so violin was a new uh territory for my family and that definitely was the instrument that I fell in love with the, the beginning
1: Very cool. That's actually a perfect segue to what my next question was going to be, which I wasn't sure if I was going to ask because you you kind of touched on it. Mm -hmm. Um, But the question is, what led you to devote your talents to Jewish music in particular? Because I could imagine growing up you know, kind of, Oh, you guys play piano. I could imagine a reaction from a young person growing up in a family surrounded by Jewish professionals and people that are passionate about Jewish life saying, I don't want to do that. Mm -hmm. That's not for me. Um, so what led you to this particular path and to devoting your many talents to Jewish music in particular?
2: That's a great question and very astute. I definitely did go through a period of my life where I was like, I'm not doing that. That's what everybody in my family does. Um, So my very quick trajectory was I was a a classically trained violinist. So for a part of a big chunk of my young adulthood, that's kind of where where I saw myself, like playing in an orchestra or or chamber music or whatever. And I played through college seriously. Um, And when I entered college, I remember... That, I mean, that's what I envisioned for myself. I, I, ch- I, you know, chose a school that had a great program for me and with a teacher that I was going to study with, and I did that all through college. Um, but while I was in college, I, I met, um, you know, all the kinds of weird and wonderful people you get to mix with when you're in a, a university environment. Or, And so a couple of my friends were like the, like, folky, hippie kids of... of um, of my class, and they were like kind of folk singers, and they wrote their own music, and I used to go hear them play at, at you know in coffee shops and stuff. and it just like never occurred to me that you could just write songs. not like they not like, they like l- learned how to do it from somewhere. They just had these songs that they'd written together, and they' do these shows, and it was so inspiring to me. and I'd always I'd always played music and sung, and I'd always loved to write. like I used to write stories and all that stuff, you know, uh, fiction writing. But I never, I don't know, it just literally had never even occurred to me to try to write a song. And so my my friends, um uh Sam and Simon, those were their names. Um, <laughs> that was the name of their group, Sam and Simon. Um, I used to watch them in college and just and and they were kind of the reason that I started to write just music in general. So I started writing folk music in in college and you know, playing in the coffee houses in New Haven, and then I moved to New York and I started um uh you know playing like clubs in New York and um, I had a big chunk of my life probably 10-ish years where that's what I was doing primarily was traveling as a um folk singer basically (laughs) and playing in secular um, venues and stuff and um and I loved it I mean I loved the um some of the work some of the aspects of the work that I do now that overlap that I still really love of you know getting to um, meet and connect with people all over the place that i wouldn 't ordinarily get to meet and and um and you know of course, the, using music to do that um, and I think there was a part of me that didn 't it wasn 't like a hundred percent it was like mm. really good, and it 's so hard to you know have to make a living in music that if you 're making a living in music it 's like okay i 'm like I did it, you know what I mean. But I was, yeah, something was a little bit missing. And in the early days then, um, those early like club dates in New York uh, were like the kinds of places that would give you your your first gigs in New York. Like they're like these gross <laughs> clubs that are underneath the real club or over the, you know, or they give you a 20 minute set at like 3 p.m. or whatever. And, um, and um, because of my parents and the work that they did, um, Debbie Friedman of blessed memory was a friend of my parents. Mm-hmm. And she used she was a, a part of my life. Like she was a presence in my life. And those early gigs in New York, she used to come to hear me play in these like, I mean, I'm gonna think about it now, just like her <laughs> schlepping down to these like gross places in the village and stuff. And anyway, she really was the first person to um, start this idea in my head. She would hear me play, you know, my folk songs in New York, and she would say something nice about the show, and then immediately be like, "So, like, you know, when are you gonna uh, write something for the Jews?" You know, <laughs> basically, and and I would just kind of laugh, and be like, "Oh, like, that's so funny!" Like, no, I'm like, I don't do that, you know, but but that's really nice, and I don't know. It was just kind of like a joke that we used to have, and and I I didn't take it in a heavy way. Like, it was just kind of like, no, that's kind of what my family is doing, and I'm doing this other thing that's you know. And like being a touring musician and whatever. And she just kept at me, and kept at me all the time. Every time we'd see each other, she would do that. And we would laugh. And anyway, I I was doing that work for a long time. And then I remember I was, it was just after my daughter, Maya, was born. So she's almost 11. And um, I was like a new parent uh, for the first time. And... um, Kind of experiencing what I now know for a lot of my friends and for people that I that are in my life is sort of uh, can be a part of becoming a new parent, which is like trying to orient yourself in your new life and like how does this work and who am I and I, I was like feeling all that mixture of of joy and also kind of confusion and and like like reorganizing my identity around being a parent and feeling kind of. Um, you know, unmoored, mm. for a bit, lack of a better word, and um, I was trying to settle my daughter down, and I was humming to her, keep her calm, which like you know, everyone like makes up little songs and whatever. And as I was doing that, I was I realized I'm um, it's has words, and they're in Hebrew, and it's a prayer, and um, it was very strange because I had been so strongly resistant to the idea that that would be something that would come out of me, but it was, um, you know, spontaneous prayer. It's, it's still not really the primary way that I engage with um, with Judaism and with, you know, worship or whatever, that I'm just in a place and I get overwhelmed and I'm just praying. Like, that that's not the way that I tend to, to access it. But in this particular moment, that was what happened, and it was the first piece of Jewish music that I wrote. We sang it in services last night, Ihi Uleratzon, Um, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable. You know, may all the things that I'm worrying about and agonizing over and feeling unsure of be okay. And, and really from that, really, truly from that day forward, I started sharing those, the music that was, that was coming, that was, this Jewish music was coming and with, with, uh, you know, people in my life and, um, it very clearly, it was very clear very early for me that that was a a full alignment. You know, it was almost everything that I'd had with the, it was everything that I almost had with the secular music plus this extra piece that, you know, it doesn't matter how far you try to run away from the things that you come from. That's what you come from. And so, um, and I'm so grateful for that. But really, so really Debbie had a big Mm. um, hand in planting the seed and I, um, she died like, two years before Maya was born. So she never got to hear this music, but I do um, feel her presence in my work and her hand in my path. And I'm really grateful for that.
1: Yeah. I I mean, I think we're all grateful for everything that she gave to us. Um, Not only the music that we still sing, that is such a key guide in our moments of, of healing, especially, but when we go on a trip and we are to Derek or whatever it is mm-hmm. um and and also the the people that she raised up and the people carrying like yourself carrying on her legacy of of bringing music and Torah and Jewish community kind of all together mm-hmm. in that one package um and you know I don't know what your theology is I don't know what the theology is of the people here in this room or out there but I would imagine she can hear it. Mm-hmm. Um, and and when you were talking about kind of that moment, thank you so much for, for sharing that moment. Um, I'm thinking about something that I've talked with a lot of people about prayer because I think prayer can be this very strange experience where you're, it's like, I'm supposed to feel something. And particularly for us as Jews, you have these prescribed words in a prayer book that, you know, it's like when you pray, you go to the prayer book and you read what's written there. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't necessarily mean it's communicating whatever you might be feeling in that particular moment. And something I I learned when I was in rabbinical school and I've often thought about is, you know, there's so many times when you're just going to read the words and it doesn't really sink in and um, you're not necessarily connecting with it in a way that... You might think that you should and then something happens in your life or you meet someone or you lose someone or something happens to you and those words that were just words kind of flow out of you um, because those, those are the words that you have. That's the language that you have to express that. And it's. I think it's just really beautiful that it's like in this really pivotal moment in your life, the words that you – used to express kind of this complicated bundle of feelings. And you can tell me if I'm, if I'm describing it incorrectly, were the words that had kind of carried you when you were, um, when you were being raised and falling asleep on tables at Kutz <laughs> and, and all of that. So that's just really beautiful. So, yeah. and thank you for giving us the words and melodies that will carry, that do carry and continue to carry us.
2: Oh, thank you for that. Yeah, I mean, it's an honor to be part of the chain of all of this. It really is. And um, I don't, I really, I truly can say that I'll never take for granted that the sound of of, of people singing together, you know. My music or anyone's music, after the couple years of Mm. where we met each other in the Zoom boxes, (laughs) Rabbi, like a couple years of really feeling what that feels like to not have that... um, Sensory experience of being surrounded in sound or or really needing to pray, but not really having it the right Wherewithal to do it yourself and letting yourself be carried away with other people's voices. I feel like I of course I always Intellectually believed that that was true and that that there's something inherently prayerful about just singing together whatever it is that we're singing Um but now I really know for sure mm-hmm. after those couple of years. So I think, um, yeah, I think I think the way you described it is beautiful. The the thing about having a tra- you know a long tradition of thousands of years, where part of what we're taught is you know part of the power of you know hearing Cornish is you know not that the words of the Cornish particularly are so meaningful because it's like it's contract yeah. language or whatever, yeah. like legalese or something. But it's that like we're supposed to imagine that some ancestor of ours, some some many 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 generations back, who we are not connected through, to in any you know physical way, or certainly have never met, was also sit singing those same that same melody and hearing those same words, and so there is something beautiful and super. It feels very foundationally Jewish to me because of the sort of survival piece of all of it. The idea that. Yeah, those Yihul ratzonim refi, that prayer that I was that ended up being in this setting that I, that first Jewish setting um I was not aware at any time in my life prior to that that I was feeling super connected to that prayer it's just like a prayer that I read like you said you read the words and you learned them and I knew what they were meant and I sang other versions of them at summer camp and that's how it was and then something about having those words that are repeated and that your ancestors and their ancestors and back, 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 uh, have been saying, they do just kind of surface when you need them. And I think, I would say that before that experience, I sort of, I'm not sure I could have exactly said that I was Mm -hmm. positive I believe that, but I do believe that now. I think that, yeah, those things find us when we need them, you know, and uh, in the same way that, you know, people who um, believe in their, you know, ancestor spirits or people visiting them who are not here anymore. You start to see the signs of the things that you're looking for. I think that, um, I think prayer is like that too. You know, that there when when you have an openness to maybe because of a loss or because of a you know um, a, a challenge in your life or something, or the opposite, or something beautiful and joyful and simple that's happening, like it opens us to the possibility that maybe. Um, we can resonate with those words that have been there
1: forever. Yeah, I'm thinking about, I'm going to offer a a little bit, kind of a a teaching. I'm a rabbi, Mm it's what we do after all. Um, But I'm thinking about uh, the medieval scholar, commentator, also a poet, Abraham Ibn Ezra. Um, When he would commentate on the Torah, he would talk about how you know, the ancient rabbis of the Midrash got really caught up on how you would have multiple words that mean the same thing that are being repeated within the text. And, you know, it's got to mean something different or this is speaking to one aspect of divinity, this is speaking to another. And, you know, he was a very rational guy, very rational thinker. And he would come come in and you say, no, it's just, it's synonyms. It's just the Mm -hmm. same word. It's just a different version of that, or it has the same meaning. It's just a different word. And he would describe words as as kelim, as vessels, and that the meaning is the same, but it's the vessels that are different. And I'm, as we're having this conversation, I'm thinking about like an alternate understanding of thinking of words as vessels, as these words, for example, like a col nidre, ha, like so many people have poured so much emotional and spiritual energy into these words that we, you you almost can't help but, feel a little bit of it because it's it's they're carrying that energy that Mm -hmm. has been passed through generations and that's not to say like in order for prayer to be meaningful has to be old but i think it it points to kind of the richness of the tradition and the idea of even if we appreciate new prayers the idea of saying those things with our ancestors or singing with Miriam at the shores of the sea when we sing um, that you're kind of tapping into those vessels.
2: Yeah, absolutely. That's actually, it's, um, that's beautiful. And I do have a memory of Debbie. Um, I was singing at a funeral of, uh, just a very tragic young person. Um, and I was feeling shaky, and it was, and it was a long time ago, and I was uh, younger, and and I wanted to, like, do a good job, you know? <laughs> that thing of, like, I'm going to... And um, which is obvious, so obviously not the point of a moment like that, to do a good job, right? It's, like, to be present in the moment with the people and their feelings and everything. And I do remember that Debbie saw me kind of probably looking like I was nervous and really wanting to do a good job. And she just said, um, "Be a vessel
1: hmm.
2: you know and that that really was so much of what what her impact was. Of course, she wrote beautiful music and and brought an awareness of the way that we could um, engage with Judaism through singing and and you know, there's lots of innovation and all of that, but one of her real gifts as a as a, a a spiritual leader and a presence was exactly that, this sort of idea that like... We're, we're really vessels for whatever it is, the Mm. words that are going to move through you or the connection that's going to move through you or your capacity to connect to the community around you or the words of your ancestors or, 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 but the idea that like, it's so not about you or about Mm -hmm. you doing a good job, you know, just be a vessel. I mean, I do think about that a lot.
1: Absolutely. Thank you for that. Um, Could you play something for us? Sure. I'd love to. As you're getting adjusted, I'm, so I'm going to ask you to, to play something for us, and then I'll open up the floor, see if folks have any questions.
2: But what should it be? That's the thing, you know?
1: Is there anything that you feel is speaking to this <laughs> moment?
2: Yeah. Let me just think for a moment. Um, yeah. Um... So this is um, a newish uh, setting of we. I talked a little bit about this last night of the oh, the priestly blessing. You know, that's like the oldest um, blessing. We're, we're taught it's the oldest blessing in Judaism, and it's um, you know you you hear it at a bar mitzvah or a baby naming or a wedding, uh, welcoming a new member of the Jewish community. It's like peak. Peak blessing moments, um, and um, I have a, a setting that we did last night. That's sort of based in the response. Excuse me, in the congregational response in that blessing, the rabbi says, "You know, may God bless you and keep you." And when we say, "Ken zone, Right. So we did uh, with some of you last night. We did the a meditation based on "Ken zone This is um, just a setting of the words of the blessing. You'll hear the "Ken zone again. Uh, those words, and um, I think I'm just thinking about this because of what we've just been talking about of the of the chain of the the chain uh, of of ancestors, or however you want to think about it. Or
1: really st- seen as like the oldest blessing in our tradition. Right it comes from the Book of Numbers, the Priestly Benediction.
2: Right, my Bar Mitzvah portion. Not to brag, Parshat Naso could probably still my Bar Mitzvah portion. Come on, see, so. There is something. There's something, exactly. <laughs> it's it is like, um, I don't know. I remember as a Bat Mitzvah student learning about this this blessing and you know, feeling like special that it was in my portion or whatever, and 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 learning that it was the oldest blessing. And and yeah, I just had whatever picture I had in my mind of what, you know, people dressed like and looked like and behaved like in that time. I sort of liked the idea as I was learning how to chant from the Torah that these ancient priests that they would call, you know, Nazarites they would call them. Like we're chanting these same words in the same way, so this is my setting of it, and I have uh um, th- there's a Hebrew section, which will be just the the words that you're used to hearing, and I'll teach you the can you hear its own part and then I did a, an English um sort of interpretation of it as well, and this was um a, a commissioned by a congregation in Chicago for their inst- installation of the, their new senior rabbi. And um, it was written during COVID. So it was one of many pieces that I wrote, you know, alone in my house and made a video and sent to the congregation. And it was a long time before I got to actually really uh, participate in it with people. So um, I'd love to sing it with you. <clears throat> so the Kenye Hiratzon part is pretty simple. It goes like this.
0: Kenye Hiratzon hier at sonterad can ye hier at son can ye hier at son beautiful ihr war gegangen ad hier at so ja yeah, er I May you feel a spark shining from within you. May you feel the warmth of holy light. Can Yah Love and understand
1: So used to being in prayer spaces. I know it's you, the weirdest. you try not to clap, and but I'm glad we we could, we could <laughs> totally. show we could show you our our love in that way. Thank you. Speaking of, do we have any questions that folks are burning to ask? We have one of the greatest Jewish singer songwriters in, in the country, in the world here with us. Do you have any questions for her? i to ask as our Mayan Acadia. Yeah. Just for the podcast purposes, yeah, the yeah, question repeat. the question was, um, are your daughters, Maya and Acadia, following in your footsteps? Good question.
2: They're young, yeah. They're definitely both quite musical, I will say, and that's so fun to see. Um, Maya plays the piano. She also plays the euphonium. Do you know what that is? I just learned what it was this year. Um, she's in fifth grade, so in her school, it's like time to pick a band instrument, and she started on the trumpet. In fourth grade, she started on the trumpet, and she came home one day, and she was so excited and said, like, you know, the band teacher asked if I wanted to come during lunch and because she wanted to show me a different instrument, and she showed her a euphonium, which is it's basically like a tuba. It's a gigantic low <laughs> brass instrument. <laughs> And she Not told, a
1: typical instrument you would see in a middle school band. No, I don't it's think.
2: it's honestly it's so crazy and funny, but um, she is super excited about it, and she sounds great. And she said, you know, the band teacher told her because she was so good at playing the low notes on the trumpet, she gets to play the euphonium. So we have a lot of um, funny sounds that come around in our house because of that. You know, <laughs> beginning instruments, you know. Um, And she sings beautifully, Maya. And Acadia is, I think, maybe a drummer. I'm not positive. She's four, obviously. She doesn't really play anything yet. But she's, um, yeah, she's very musical and very rhythmic. And yeah, it's a joy. You know, it's a joy to see your kids get excited about anything. And so uh, particularly with my older daughter, just like getting to see them, you know, have their own identities and their own interests. And it's, it's awesome that some of it is music. And also, you know, it's great, whatever it is. Thank you.
1: Any other questions? I have one. Yeah. Yeah, Alana, you know, as an educator, it's kind of hard for me to go into a synagogue and be like, I have that time where I can pray and be connected to God. And you talked about how your music came from singing the Eulet song to your daughter Maya. How do you find that time to pray for yourself in a synagogue when it's your job to educators i'm sure rabbi ross as a rabbi kind of might struggle with that as well because it's your job to, to lead prayer how do you find that individual prayer so the the question if i can if i can pull it together in much less eloquent way i should say <laughs> is kind of how do you balance your own personal spiritual life with also being a jewish professional and being uh, in a lot of ways, kind of charged with carrying the Jewish education and the prayer life of community for many people, a community for you, many communities mm-hmm. as you go to different ones did mm-hmm. i did I capture that well? Absolutely. Okay
2: yeah' was good teamwork makes the dream work um, uh, That's a great question I guess um, I guess the simplest answer I can come up with, although I could talk about this for a long time, is that when I'm leading prayer, I'm praying, period. It's like actually not more complicated than that. And the teaching that I do both at at HUC and also um, when I get to work with wonderful clergy teams like your team here at TI Memphis and, and traveling around the country, um, I get to work a lot with you know younger clergy people who are new to leading prayer, newer to leading prayer or newer to leading in whatever particular setting they're in. And that's a real sort of core, you know, the longer you do something, the more you kind of understand what you actually think about it and what's important to you. I can, I now know that that's a really important part of my work, which is that, you know, and I think we all can see it and feel it and know it when we see it, when someone is kind of performing the rabbi or like performing the cantor, you know, like it's not that they're not doing a beautiful job, you know, um, and like it sounds great and it looks great, but um, you can really feel when someone is just being present with the prayer, you know, And sometimes that means you lose your place, you know, and you say the wrong word. and you know, I and play the wrong chords. and And I think the longer I do this, the more comfortable I am and in, in the fact that, like that's part of it too. the same way that when we get carried away with anything that we're thinking about, we kind of lose where we are for a second. And it's just feels really important to me to um to be in the in the prayer when I'm praying, when I'm leading. Um, I had an experience, uh, during the high holidays, I lead, I lead with a wonderful rabbi, her name is Elke Abrahamson, and she, um, she's a real teacher and a mentor of mine, and, um, and also, I think, one of the best prayer leaders I've ever gotten to lead with, and we've led together for the last five years or so. And we had a moment, you know, in, in, I think it was in Yisker, in the high holidays, um, where, you know, it was her turn to do something or whatever. I was singing and then it was like, I looked on the cue sheet while I was singing to see what was coming next. And it was her turn to do something. And I was kind of wrapped up in what I was doing and I sort of became aware that she was not doing the thing that she was supposed to be doing, you know? So I like came back into my role as a leader and like looked over and realized like she was having a moment in Yisker of like remembering her, you know, ancestors who've passed and mm-hmm. she was taking that time. And to me, that's such a mark of someone who's a comfortable Um, prayer leader is that she's not trying to like make herself not cry remembering her ancestors but just taking the moment and being there what's the worst that happens other people who are grieving are going to feel that you're grieving too you know what I mean so that's I think that's my simplest answer I I don't find um I feel a lot of connection to you know something divine and bigger than us when I'm singing with other people. And I get that feeling a lot and I feel so blessed to get to get that feeling a lot in my work, but outside of the realm of that, it's pretty hard for me to kind of access a prayerful headspace. So I think if I didn't do it when I was leading, I wouldn't be doing it, Mm. you know? So I really need that time. And, um, and I think the best, the people who are really the most authentic that we feel the most moved by in that leadership are that way because they're, there is no separation. Like they're, they're, they're praying and maybe they forgot to tell you what page to turn to because they were like in it, you know, and and we forgive them because, because of that and we forgive ourselves because of that.
1: Absolutely. Uh, I got one more question being mindful of the time. Um, what are you working on at the moment? Yeah. That you can share yeah, what in are you a working somewhat on public...
2: No, no, totally. Um, so, uh, well, there's lots of things going on, which is great. One um, thing I'm really excited about is um, the there's sort of one big publishing house of Jewish of Jewish music uh, like sheet music, you know, and they uh, they publish you know collections, different kinds of collections, and anthologies of Shabbat music and anthologies of um, you know new uh, music for camps or for different holidays, or whatever. And I've you know been delighted to be published to have pieces of mine included in those. Um, Volumes over the years, Um, but they are doing actually they're publishing actually an anthology of all of my music um, in in next year. uh, Oohs and ahs go across the crowd. (laughs) Um, So I'm sort of deep in that process now, which um, which is sort of cool. I mean, it's like it's like a proper book. There's an editorial team, and they are, um, you know, I have over the years I've notated you know put into music notes that people you know use my own notation of my music but you know it's the limitations of what I know how to do on the computer it's not like a proper music publishing whatever and then you know you have to write uh, paragraphs about each piece and the inspiration and things about teaching and so that's been really cool and exciting so that I think that that probably won't be out for like at least another year but it's we're in the process now and I'm very honored to have been asked to do that um and, yeah, and I'm sort of just starting, let's say, pre-production for another record. I'm, I'm just at a place of um, having, like, enough... You, you, you kind of want to... Or I, I usually, in the recording realm, want to have a lot more songs than the amount mm. that will end up on the record. You know, you don't want to have, like, exactly 12 songs that you've written, and then they all have to... You want to have some flexibility to feel, like, what feels good and what you feel more attached to. So I've been kind of getting close, but yeah, it's about time now to figure that piece out. So I'm just starting to think about where do I want to do that and how, and my last record was um, really deep, like it was like March of 2020 when we started, and then it got all crazy for a couple of years. So it was a super um, unconventional process. Because of that, we stopped and started a million times, and so I'm excited to kind of, hopefully I'm going to knock on something. That's not really wood. Also, that's not really Jewish here. This is wood. Um, But... um, (laughs) But, you know, anything helps. Um, I'm going to hope that this will be a more sort of typical process, but I'm really excited about about that. And, and then otherwise, you know, the bulk of my work that I'm working on always is the work, like, that I'm doing with you all this weekend and um, just getting to be with so many different communities and really engage. Uh, Rabbi Ross and I were talking over dinner just about, you know, uh, in the same way that basically all of us as people are probably gra- grappling with, like, you know 99% Venn diagram overlap of the same questions and issues and you know uh relationships and tensions and dreams like you know congregations around the country are grappling with almost identical problems and they are tr- addressing them in all different kinds mm-hmm. of ways and so I really enjoy that part of my work just kind of getting to see like what does jewish life look like in memphis what does jewish li- look life look like in El Paso, like, you know, what does it look like in Seattle? And, and how are these people getting those people to be here? And what about these two communities coming together? And just, you know, figuring out the continuity of the chain is a lot of my work now. And, uh, and it's really a blessing. It's fun to get Amazing. to be a part Well, of. we are
1: so grateful to be a part of that work and to benefit um, not only from your music, but from your many gifts of teaching and prayer leading. And um, we're so excited to welcome you here to Memphis, not once not twice but three times <laughs> over the next calendar year um, Alana will be joining us uh, the first weekend of December December 1st and second um, so be on the lookout for details concerning that I think we tentatively have in, in the in the plans to do another event at the crosstown space wonderful um, and then she will be returning in April just before Passover. Um, in celebration of Temple Israel's uh, the beginning of Temple Israel's hundred and seventieth year.
2: That's a big number. 170th that is year. A lot. That on. is a that's a big chain. That's a, a big chain, exactly. <laughs> big yeah. chain.
1: Um and also as part of uh the installation of our new congregational president, um Woo-hoo! April nineteenth. Uh and you can Check her out on at Alana Hope. That's Alana with an E mm-hmm. on Instagram mm-hmm. or AlanaArian.com. Uh, go check out the other side of fear streaming on all platforms, presumably. Mm-hmm. Um, and is there anything else, anything else you want to plug?
2: No, this has been wonderful. Thank you so would much. You, would
1: you send us out with one more song?
2: Yes, I would. I would send us out with one.
1: You seem pretty set on on what you're playing.
2: <laughs> well, what do you have? Something you no, want? No,
1: no. I just in case you needed a prompt. But
2: okay, no, this is good. So the only other setting of Tefillah Haderach I know is Debbie's. We mm. talked about that I think last night, which is.
0: Um, um, amen. Amen. May this be
2: anyway um so this is a, this is a setting of haderach of my own like debbie's it's kind of like a english interpretive thing and the concept of haderach is like some people translate that as a traveler's prayer you sometimes you see a traditionally observant jews like in the airport they might have like a little thing of the traveler's prayer on like their backpacks you know to keep you safe as you travel and that is one of the uses of haderach but really the um Derek is a path. It's like the way. So really, it's like a prayer for the path, uh, which, you know, for when we leave this room, for when we leave, wherever you people who are listening are going to, maybe in your car or elsewhere, or for whatever next step you're starting, or whatever you're leaving behind, this is a nice way for us to end our time together. Um, just a blessing for the going. Um, some of you sang this with me last night. We just say amen, like um, very many times, and then we say, ve'imru amen, and we say amen. So it goes like this. <laughs> ah.
0: Bless us with strength. that we are never alone. Bless us with love for the journey, and we say amen.
1: Um, Amen. Thank you so much, Alana. Let's give it up. Thank you. Thank you to everyone who joined us in person. Thank you to all of you joining us online whenever you might be hearing this. Thank you to Justin Drake in the back. Uh, our resident podcast tech and master of all things technological and sound. And we hope to see you soon uh, in whatever form. Please check out the rest of the podcast. Okay. Justin, you let me know when we're rolling. Or were we rolling the whole time? Cool. We're
2: continuing to roll. Cool. We are this will still, be in the outtakes. Still rolling.
0: Yeah. Yeah. All right.